Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Evan O'Donnell, sports medicine and shoulder surgeon at MGH in Boston, and Dr. Larry Galata, chief of the shoulder and elbow division and fellowship director of the shoulder fellowship at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Drs. O'Donnell and Galata were the authors of the paper entitled, The Effect of Patient Characteristics and Comorbidities on the Rate of Revision Rotator Cuff Repair, which is published in the September 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. O'Donnell and Dr. Galata, and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Justin. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity again to share our research with you and the uh, readership. Yeah, great. I'm I'm excited about this because I think this is a topic that maybe we don't think about quite as uh, often as we should. So, Dr. O'Donnell, why don't we start with you? Can you just summarize the study a little bit and talk to us, you know, about these risk factors that you found, and if anything surprised you when you went through all this data? Yeah, absolutely. You know, to to take a step back, you know, this study was kind of dreamt up by Dr. Galata and myself, and it was you know, at its core, an analysis of patient characteristics and comorbidities that were associated with uh, revision rotator cuff surgery. The idea really started by taking a look at, you know, our, what we traditionally use to predict, I guess, retear rates or clinical failure rates. And, you know, at least, you know, in our education or in our um, estimation of the literature, uh, we use fatty atrophy and fatty infiltration, you know, tangent sign or tendon length, these morphologic predictors of retear rates or clinical failures. And we often overlook other parts of the biology, you know, what are the, uh, you know, the clinical comorbidities that may affect tendon healing. So it was kind of in that context that the this uh, study was born. And so what we did, we uh, we used uh, a large insurance database, Pearl Diver, and we set up a, a comprehensive list of comorbidities to predict revision rotator cuff surgery. Uh, and in particular, we looked at smoking status, diabetes, obesity, hyperlipidemia, vitamin D deficiency, osteoporosis, and then a metric of overall comorbidity burden uh, called the Charleston Comorbidity Index to try to predict revision rotator cuff rates. And what we found was pretty interesting, you know, what happens outside the OR and, you know, factors other than the morphologic characteristics of the, uh, the tear were important. And namely, we found that smoking, obesity, vitamin D deficiency, and hyperlipidemia were associated with revision rotator cuff repair. And perhaps what was most surprising to me, though, was that overall comorbidity index or overall, overall comorbidity burden was not predictive of revision surgery. And also interesting was that diabetes was found to be protective against revision surgery. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I, I think, you know, a lot of those things, a few of them, like you mentioned, maybe are surprising, but a few of the others make sense. And Dr. Galat, about kind of like along those same lines, has this changed your practice at all? Say, are you avoiding rotator cuff repairs on smokers or those with obesity or supplementing vitamin D levels? Tell us your thoughts about those uh, risk factors and if it's affected your practice. Yeah, sure, Justin. Thanks a lot. Uh, One thing I just add about the inception of the study was the idea that a lot of these individual risk factors have been looked at in animal models, whether it be diabetes, hyperlipidemia, smoking, as they're as they related to rotator cuff healing. And really the, the idea was born of the idea, well, hey, you know, we talk about all these one-off basic science animal uh, model studies, 
but in human beings with a large database, can we start to show that these things actually are affecting outcomes? And, and, and indeed, for most of them, at least, uh, as Evan mentioned, we were able to. Uh, I think one of the somewhat encouraging things from it is that when you see the things that truly do affect revision rotator cuff repairs, things like smoking, obesity, vitamin D in particular, they're, they're somewhat modifiable, meaning uh, you know, we can adjust uh, the patient's profile with the hope being is that by adjusting that profile, we're going to put them in a better chance for healing. You know, smoking, obviously, it's easier said than done to smoke. Um, there's a lot of psychosocial aspects of that as well. Personally speaking, in my practice, I will operate on smokers, but I do have a long conversation with them. We do have a smoking cessation program that I can refer them to, and I strongly urge them to do it. And I really tell them the statistics here that you do have an increased risk of having a bad outcome if you continue to smoke. And the joke is always, hey, smoking's bad for a lot of parts of you, but uh, the part I'm most concerned about right now is getting your rotator cuff to heal. So for that reason alone, just stop it. Now, I don't test them, and I don't have a hard stop to proceeding to the operating room if they choose to not follow that advice. Obesity is in the extreme. So our hospital right now, you cannot do an elective surgery on somebody with a BMI over 40, which is, which is high, but that triggers a referral to a weight management specialist who we recently hired. She's been on staff now, I think about two years or so. And I've had several of my patients start with her and they've been tremendously thankful it is a hard stop if you're morbidly obese, uh, just to have elective surgery or hospital. But but you know you just have to have a BMI over 30 to to qualify for being obese. And, and I'll again counsel them. I'll quote them the literature that we found here. Uh, but but again, it's not a hard stop. And then the final thing is the vitamin D. And we do draw vitamin D levels on all of our preoperative patients. Quite honestly, it started as a study that we started, I don't know, seven years ago now to see if vitamin D levels did affect uh, rotator cuff healing. And the study is still, uh, it's been presented at the academy, and we're still trying to um, uh, put the final touches on the manuscript to get that submitted. But the take home there is it actually does matter. And uh, if they have a vitamin D level below 12, which is qualifies for vitamin D deficiency, we will, uh, through our medical doctors, prescribe vitamin D for them. You know, the question is, is you can identify these relationships or these correlations. Uh, what we haven't been able to do is bridge that gap to causation and whether or not our interventions actually do positively affect the outcome. But that's something that we need to look at moving forward. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, supplementing someone with vitamin D is so easy. It's just, I think we have to kind of think about it. And if it's part of your protocol, even with all the surgeries, it's pretty straightforward to just, you know, implement that. So Dr. O'Donnell, before you mentioned uh, about the population-based studies, I know we, we have a lot of discussion about these. Uh, it really offers a lot of, you know, strength and numbers, but can you talk to us a little bit about the population-based study here and some of the limitations and also the strengths of this kind of study? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is a you know somewhat common commentary in, in our literature in orthopedics. There are many perks uh, and strengths of the administrative or insurance databases. You know, one of the things is that you're able to study rare events such as revision rotator cuff repair. You know, uh, to do this out of a, a single surgeon or single institution uh, would be challenging. It would take a, an extremely long amount of time. And, and further, like large database studies, for example, can can be utilized when it's performing the study is cost prohibitive. So um, that's another perk. Thirdly, large database studies can be used in scenarios where the hypotheses may violate clinical equipoise. So, you know, I think there are, there are certain applications to this. And, um, and Jordan Cansian actually wrote a commentary to 
our article published in arthroscopy, and I think it, it summarizes these uh, very well. And, and in that, you know, he is an expert in ProViver in particular, and I think he shows which uh, metrics are, are easy to use, and they're also very accurate within ProDiver. And I think, for example, revision rotator cuff repair is one of these targets and is the reason why we selected it for our study, because although there are some kind of inherent um, biases within it in terms of, you know, some patients perhaps had a poor outcome but didn't undergo a revision rotator cuff repair, or they were converted to another surgery or just, you know, such as a reverse or, or just didn't undergo the revision surgery, um, you know, it's a tangible event which is collected uh, within this database. You know, the uh, other limitations of administrative data is that, you know, they're certainly dependent on your coding accuracy. There's been a, a pretty large effort into improving the accuracy of these databases and also kind of validating them. I'd say an, another larger limitation is that in looking at these comorbidities, the comorbidities themselves can represent a real varied expression of disease. So, for example, in diabetes, you can be a poorly controlled diabetic with complications secondary to that, or you can be uh, a diet-controlled diabetic, but these can be coded, you know, under the same, you know, ICD-9 or ICD-10 umbrellas. Um, so, you, you lose some granularity and some nuance there, but, you know, I think for the purpose of this study, which is to try to pool or try to look across all of these comorbidities, to see which influence uh, revision rotator cuff repair, it was a uh, it was an effective and, uh, and a good methodology. Yeah, Evan, I'd just add that the way I see these large database studies is that they're more hypothesis generating as opposed as opposed to hypothesis driven. So I think again, you can get some thirty thousand foot view correlations, but if you can do causation or if you can figure out if you can intervene to adjust the outcomes, th those are the things that you need to figure out a more prospective study. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's almost like cadaveric studies. There are just inherent limitations to these, but without these kinds of studies, we would never have any kind of answers. So they certainly play an important role. And I think it's, it's good to kind of chat about that stuff. So uh, the thing that uh, Dr. O'Donnell mentioned about, you know, we don't really know if people had poor outcomes or reverse replacement. What's your kind of gestalt, Dr. Galata, that you would say, you know, with some of these risk factors you worry that might go on to reverse or have poor outcomes, you think they would kind of apply to those same situations? Absolutely. I mean, I have no reason to think they would not. You're right. You're right here. It's about an 8%, 8% revision rotator cuff uh, repair, where, and it's a little over a year. 8% of these patients are getting taken back to the operating room to try to re-repair the rotator cuff. And that is not uh, taking into consideration patients who are just living with a stiff, painful, or weak shoulder who are electing not to undergo rotator cuff repair again. And we're not capturing the patients who went on to reverse shoulder replacement. So, so I, do, I, I think that if you did or if you were able to capture those patients as well, uh, I think you would only find a stronger correlation between these comorbidities and uh, those adverse outcomes. Yeah, I think they all kind of go together and, and kind of along the same lines. I mean, 8% isn't, isn't low. And what are your thoughts? You know, people are, were talking, there's some more recent studies that say PRP and, you know, some of the studies out of UConn talking about using stem cells from the bursa. What are your thoughts about biologics or repair strategy or kind of your, your ways to optimize these folks? We can start with you, Dr. Galata. Yeah, I think there's a lot of exciting research uh, going into it. 
I think at this point, unfortunately, there's more questions than answers. Uh, I do think that there is an answer out there, but exactly what that answer is, what does it look like, how do we apply it, I, I couldn't tell you right here. So keeping that in mind, my number one thing that I try to do is a tension-free repair of the rotator cuff and then get solid fixation back to the footprint. So I think making sure that you do adequate you know, bursal side releases, uh, release it from the capsule intraarticularly, and really make sure that I can get that uh, rotator cuff tendon mobilized back to the footprint. I think that's going to be your best shot at, at getting a good repair. Uh, I will, I say, I've recently started to use some dermal allograft to augment uh, repairs, definitely in revision situations, and, and even in some of these, bio, what I call, quote-unquote, biologically challenged uh, hosts, so patients who, you know, refuse to quit smoking or, uh, you know, they have any of the other risk factors that we've already talked about here, I will add in some, a, a patch. Uh, you know, I personally use the dermal allograft, but I mean, there's other patches uh, that I think do accomplish the same thing of providing a collagen scaffold to help, to help with healing. Now, again, those are still relatively new. What, what are the studies going to show in the future? I don't know. Uh, we are, though, going to start a randomized prospective uh, blinded study and looking to see if we can improve outcomes and healing rates uh, using those. But again, uh, to summarize the answer to your question, Justin, I think it's exciting, but right now more questions than answers. And the only thing I know that I can affect is a technically excellent rotator cuff repair right now. Yeah, Dr. O'Donnell, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with what, what Dr. Law just said in that, uh, you know, tension-free rotary cup repair is a tantamount, you know, and I think in doing that, I think you can use the, you know, preoperatively the morphologic features of the um, the cuff on the MRI to help predict, you know, your your likelihood of uh, tendon healing or re-tear. And then intraoperatively, you know, doing many things that Dr. Guada mentioned, like, you know, uh, a subacromial release, an intraarticular release, you know, uh, interval slides if you need to, but any, any way that you can generate a tension-free repair to help foster, improve your healing rates. You know, and additionally, I think, you know, using the, this comorbidity data to layer, layer on top. So you, if you have the, um, you know, structural, uh, you know, preoperative features that, you know, may pretend a, a higher retail rate, and then you layer on the fact that they're a smoker or obese, you know, I, um, you know perhaps you'd start thinking uh, about a, a different uh, surgical intervention, you know, whether it's a, you know, a reversal of shoulder or, or a partial pair or tendon transfer. But, but I think you can use this data kind of synergistically with, uh, what has previously been published to help help manage these patients. Yeah, it makes sense. Are any, any of you guys using any of the patches that are, you know, returning back in vogue or do you have thoughts about that? And also I'd be curious your thought about how aggressive you are with partial repairs. You know, if you can get something over to the footprint, are you way more inclined to do that? Or you worry about too much tension and you're more aggressive with an SCR? What are your guys' thoughts about those topics? Yeah, it's a good, a good question. I, I will use the dermal allografts. I've also used the type 1 bovine collagen uh, patch in the past as well. I would say anecdotally been very happy, though have not rigorously looked at my studies to say equivocally it's, it's improved my outcomes. I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, I was just curious how aggressive you are with partial repair versus yeah. maybe doing more of an SCR if you're worried about tension. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great, it's a great, that's all. A great question. I think the times I've gotten burned in my practice are times that I yeah, I kind of went into it thinking I probably was going to have a hard time repairing it. Maybe I was just going to get away with a margin convergence or a partial repair. But then once you get working, you start to go for broke. And uh, yeah, and I get it. I'm <laughs> under a little tension and I'm really happy with uh, myself on the back looking at my final arthroscopy pictures. 
Uh, and then those are the patients when they fail, they fail catastrophically. The whole thing really just makes a run for it, and they're not able to cope. And I, that's a tough situation, and that's a revision surgery, which is begging for a revision surgery. So I've come to more respect uh, and take what the shoulder gives me. And, and so, again, it's all about trying to do it under as little tension as possible. If that means having to do a margin convergence, that's fine. I'll do that. If I don't have enough tissue to margin converge, I, you know, I can't get that tissue from anterior to posterior and posterior to anterior and cover the head with that patient's own tissue, to me, then that's the indication for doing, um, uh, to, for doing a superior capsule reconstruction in that, in that case. Yeah, that's a good gold rule of thumb. And, you know, some of us that are younger surgeons are, you know, some of those decisions are hard to make. So things like that and your thoughts are, are helpful. So appreciate that. And tell me how aggressive you are with, you know, those people are along the same lines. If, if you see a cuff that's more chronic and that's retracted to a certain point of the head or the glenoid that you're obviously depending on their age. Uh, are you jumping to S I'm sorry, to like a reverse in some of those people or, or do you care about age with your SCRs? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, when you get into the massive rotator cuff tear, I really think this becomes the art of medicine as opposed to the science of medicine. And I say that because you can look at the same exact MRI. MRI looks identical for, let's say, five different patients. And all five of those patients, despite the fact that they have identical MRIs, can have five completely different clinical presentations. And it can go anywhere from the guy who says that his shoulder's a little achy after the 36 hole. You know, they get a little idea, they get a talk about expectations and activity modifications, and they're sent on their way, uh, all the way to a patient with anterior superior escape, cannot lift up their arm at all, then pseudoparalysis, uh, and they're getting a reverse shoulder replacement. And, and then you have the ones in the middle. So to try to make a very complicated topic as simple as possible, I like to break it down, take the physical examination, and then, and then the imaging. So the history to me is really important for really two reasons, or for two topics. You know, one is, did you have trauma? Two, is this more of a pain issue, or is it more of a weakness issue? And based on the answers to those, it's either sending me towards a repair if they have an acute traumatic event and, and they're having a lot of pain with it, uh, versus maybe I'm thinking about a reverse shoulder replacement if the patient did not have a traumatic event and, and they're having a tremendous amount of weakness. Uh, you know, the second thing is the physical examination. And for me, it's can they elevate or can they not elevate? Um, and if they can elevate, I'm, I'm probably not going to jump to do a reverse shoulder replacement. If they can elevate, then I'm thinking maybe I can do a soft tissue operation, if anything, uh, for this patient. Now, the question is, if they can't elevate, that patient has been lumped into pseudoparalysis, uh, which I think has become a bit of a wastebasket diagnosis, because I think that there's not to get too cute with it, but I think there's pseudoparalysis, and then I think there's pseudo-pseudoparalysis. And to me, pseudo-pseudoparalysis is pain inhibition. So when I get a patient who cannot lift their arm up above 90 degrees, I want to know if they can't do that because it's a mechanical problem, like answer a superior escape. If that's the case, then I think that they're going to go towards a reverse shoulder replacement. Or can they not lift up their arm because they have pain? And I'll give them a lidocaine injection in the office and then go back and examine them. And if that lidocaine allows them to lift up their arm, then I'm dealing with an elevator. And again, that's bringing me more towards potentially a soft tissue operation as opposed to a reverse shoulder replacement. Uh, and, and then the final thing is their imaging. And I mean, all the things that Evan had talked about to start the conversation, 
humeral head elevation? Is there any uh, arthritis on the x-ray? How retracted is the tendon? Is the tendon retracted back, back past the glenoid? And then what's the uh, fatty infiltration? And do they have Gutelier grade two or more? You know, if they're having any of those factors, then that's pushing me more towards a, a reverse shoulder replacement and less towards a repair. So I don't think there's any kind of one factor that pushes me one way or another, but it really does, uh, to use your term, Justin, it becomes a gestalt that the more factors they have that are pushing it towards the reverse, the more likely they're going to get the reverse and, and more factors that they have going towards the, the repair they're going to repair. You know, for me, the tough thing, yeah, I, so SCR is an interesting thing in terms of where that falls in the algorithm. You know, for me, an SCR is obviously a soft tissue operation. So for me, the patient has to, I think they have to be able to elevate. I personally have not seen a patient who has what I would call mechanical pseudoparalysis. That is, they, you know, the escape, they cannot generate enough force to lift their arm up over their head. I personally have not seen that be reversed with a superior capsule reconstruction, though I know there are others out there who, who would disagree with me. But to me, that's a contraindication of doing a superior capsule reconstruction. And so I go into those cases with the idea being is I'm going to try to do a margin convergence because I do think getting some tissue over the head and keeping the humeral head from buttonholing up and hitting the acromion, I think that can be helpful. Um, and I try to do it with autograph. So I try to do it by marginally converging that patient's tissue. And again, if I'm not able to do it with autograph, then I do it with allograft and I, uh, by way of the, the dermal allograft and use it as a, a superior capsule reconstruction. But either way, that patient going into that surgery I have to feel pretty confident they had they were able to generate enough power to lift up their hand over their head. Otherwise, I just won't bother doing it at all. That's outstanding. This is the stuff I, I think we all love hearing about and, you know, different thoughts from different people, even like you mentioned, I think are so invaluable. And uh, Dr. O'Donnell, I wanted to ask you, there's, you know, some more recent studies that are showing that, you know, some of these full thickness, big rotator cuff tears that um, maybe with really regimented specific therapy can do okay. Can you kind of talk about your thoughts about how aggressive you guys are with, you know, treating full thickness tears because of the research that shows that they're going to get bigger and it's better to fix them just now so they can move along with their life or, or kind of having these that people that are compensating well do a good round of PT and kind of leaving the, the cuff alone? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think in, in, a couple of things kind of help me sort this out in my clinical practice. You know, first, um, you know, you have to decide if it's an acute tear versus an a chronic tear. You know, if it's an acute tear and you image it and it's a full thickness, then I have a very low threshold to recommend early uh, surgical intervention for that. Uh, you know, if it's a full thickness tear that's, you know, of a chronic etiology, you know, say the, the guy who's come in and said, oh, I had pain over the last two years and I tweaked it a couple months ago. It's just now, now nagging me so much and I can't sleep that that brings him in. You know, then I'll, I'll send them to PT and see if I can, you know, uh, PT him for a short amount of time and then, you know, maybe six weeks to three months. And if he still has a clinical failure there, then then indicate for the uh, the rotator cuff repair. I do think that, you know, on the ends of this, the spectrum of uh, your tear morphology, so a full thickness tear, you know, has a higher rate of going on to retraction and fatty infiltration. And on the other end, you have this, uh, you know, chronic type tear where, you know, you, it probably is already retracted and, and fatty infiltrated, you know, the um, kind of the decision tree there um, it becomes easier. It's, it's in the middle. I think it's where it's more challenging. These partial tears that, you know, may linger on, you know, you can send them to physical therapy. I wouldn't expect them to go on to 
retract or, or become fatty infiltrated, but then when to make the clinical decision becomes more of a gray area for me. Yeah, I agree with a lot, everything that Evan just said. You know, when I'm looking at the MRI and I'm looking at the patient, I'm basically asking myself, if I operate on this patient, am I going to be able to anatomically repair the rotator cuff? Can I get that tendon back to the football lungs? And if I can get back there, what are my chances of getting it to heal? And if I think the answer is good for both of those, yeah, I'm going to be, have a good chance of getting it back, and I think there's a good chance it's going to heal, then I'll offer that patient surgery. And, uh, and I think having an intact rotator cuff gives them the best shot of having the most normal shoulder possible uh, move, and mitigating any bad circumstances down the road. Now, if I don't think, if the question is no to either of those, or I'm unsure, I don't know, I'm skeptical, then I say, hey, you know, the reason for rushing you to the operating room, I think that ship has sailed. I think we have some time to figure this out. I think now you've entered into that realm of the art of medicine that we just talked about, and we have some time to figure this out. So I start to do, there's a great paper by Ofer Levy, where they have the Ofer Levy anterior deltoid strengthening protocol, where basically you have patients lay on their back and try to lift up their arm while they're lying on their back. And then you can gradually add some light weights and you can gradually bring the, their back up. So you, they're lying flat and they go to a 45 degree angle and then eventually they're sitting upright or standing upright. Um, and it can be really effective. And, and I think the patients that you lie on their back and you ask them to lift their arm up, and if they're able to really start to do it, I think that's a rehabable patient. That's a patient that's controlling their humeral head enough that uh, there's potential. And I've been very, very, very pleasantly surprised uh, with our ability to do that. The way I kind of describe it to the patients, too, is I tell them, listen, you know, if you want to bench press 300 pounds, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. The wrong way to do it is to put 300 pounds on the bar and then come into the gym every day. Yeah, and then go into the bar and struggle and think that, you know, one day you're going to show up and magically be able to lift it up. That's basically what some of these patients, what the therapists are asking them to do when they're asking them to lift up their arm against gravity. It's the equivalent of 300 pounds. And then they start to shrug and the therapists yell at them, say, don't shrug, don't shrug. But, you know, they're not shrugging because they're choosing to shrug. They're shrugging because their arm is a bit weak right now. So the right way to bench press the 300 pounds is that you start with 200 or whatever it is that you can do. And then you gradually work your way up until you can finally get the 300. So to get the equivalent, to decrease the weight, to get them down to the 200, that's where you lie on their back. And, and playing with gravity a little bit, you can decrease the overall uh, weight. And then slowly but surely, you can add a one-pound weight, a two-pound weight, the equivalent of doing 210 pounds, 215 pounds, you know, whatever it may be. And again, I think it's just a really useful tool that every shoulder surgeon should know about. Yeah, that's really great insight and great tips there. We uh, really appreciate that. I think uh, we're running out of time here. So I'd like to really thank both of you guys for taking the time and the great discussion and all those tips and thoughts are really invaluable, especially this you know, study that puts to light a lot of things I think we overlook commonly to really optimize our, our repairs, which are, you know, are still a problem. So thanks for your time together. This has been great. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Really appreciate it. Drs. O'Donnell and Galata's article entitled, The Effect of Patient Characteristics and Comorbidities on the Rate of Revision Rotator Cuff Repair is published in the September 2020 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you for joining us.